My name is Marie Gervais, and I'm the host of the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast, where culture, communication, and context meet in the workplace. Discover what cultural influences have formed the careers of noteworthy leaders from around the world in a variety of professions by exploring the groups that shaped who they are today. Hello, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. Today, I'm very happy to present to you Dr. Leslie Bosch, who is the founder of Bosch Integrative Wellness. She is a developmental psychologist and national board-certified health and wellness coach specializing in self-care, stress management, emotional well-being, and mental agility. Dr. Bosch received her training as an integrative wellness coach from the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. She helps busy professionals and entrepreneurs minimize the negative effects of stress so they can make a bigger impact without sacrificing their health, well-being, or personal relationships. Welcome, Leslie. Glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So that was the formal bio. Tell the audience a little bit about who you are personally. Well, I was born in Denver, Colorado. And I sort of have had three iterations in my life. In the first part of my life, I was really dedicated to becoming a professional singer. And then I moved to New York City in an effort to pursue that goal. And then, well, of course, it didn't work out. So then I needed to find something to do to take care of myself, pay my bills. And so then I became an executive assistant. And then I moved to Tucson and got my PhD. And I basically became a developmental psychologist. And now an extension of that has really been my coaching practice. Oh, that's great. That's great. Thank you. Can you share a couple of incidents from your childhood that you think made you into the person you are today? Essentially, I think the biggest things that influenced me were the struggles really that my parents had in their marriage. So my father decided to divorce my mother when I was about six years old and he left us and really sort of never returned. And then my mother was a single mother for a while and then she decided to remarry. So for me, these are very important experiences that happened. My mother's divorce, the time she spent as a single mom, and then her remarriage. Mm -hmm. And all of this happening in 1966, when really this wasn't the norm. Not only did I lose my dad, who was dear to me, he stayed home with us and my mom worked nights. So he was more like the primary caregiver. So the loss of him was for me really traumatic. And then I think my mother... She also just had a very difficult time being alone. So I think, again, part of what was going on there was the stress of that and the impact in how she raised us. And then trying to get this blended family going. This was also, I think, really challenging. All of this sort of laid the foundation for my formative years. Right. So how do you think that shaped you? Well, it basically, I think, in large part shaped me because it affected, number one, my attachment style. Uh And attachment styles are, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're really important when you should be sort of cultivating a secure attachment style, a sense that you're good, you're okay, and other people can be trusted to take care of you and that the world is essentially a safe place to be. With insecure attachment, you can feel that you're not worthy, you can feel that others can't be trusted, and you can feel essentially that the world is a dangerous place. When you get into that insecure attachment style, this can set you up for a lot of difficulties. So do you think that set you up for difficulties personally? Yes, I think this really impacted me in terms of how I oriented to others, certainly to myself and certainly to new experiences. So would you say that made you more fearful or more resilient or 
what? Well, I think for me, no, I would say that it made me more fearful. I had low self-esteem, low self-confidence, low self-efficacy, and certainly tended to look a little too much to others, even though for me, they were still kind of a not a good bet. So there was always kind of that, um, should I, shouldn't I trust this person, but probably in a way kind of over-trusting, especially with my mother, and then just became overly obedient uh-huh. and overly compliant. And this, I think, would prove problematic in the long run. Certainly, I think with the world just feeling afraid to try new things because just not feeling that probably it was going to go well, which I think being avoidant in that way, not a good beginning, not a good way to go. Right. But you certainly moved out of it because you're very accomplished now. Yes, exactly. It sets the stage for trying to work your way through these things. And certainly now in my life, I'm definitely working to earn, as it were, my security you know, that I can be trusted with certain things. Others can be trusted with certain things as well. And that the world is essentially a mixed bag and that you can do some things to protect yourself, move towards those things that are more helpful and avoid those things that are more dangerous. Very nicely said. So from the groups that you're born into, I mean, you're born into a certain nation and culture and time and social class and family, and all of those groups are influenced by their ancestors as well. So there are many influences. And what would you say has most affected your own sense of culture and self now as a result of those being born into those groups? Well, I think the biggest thing for me is certainly being born into those groups, like, you know, being American, this is huge. Being low SES, this is huge. SES means what for those? Well, SES is socioeconomic status. So being born like blue collar and Mm -hmm. really sort of trying to work your way out of poverty. This, I think, is extremely influential, like as a group. Yeah. So how has that formed your leadership style coming out of poverty? Well, I think in terms of my leadership style, I think another group that really impacted me, a lot of what has had to happen for me is to grow out of these things and to shed them. So they are not for me things. The story of my relationship to these early influences is to outgrow them. Right. And to shed them and to select again and to reintegrate into a different approach. Mm -hmm. So I do think that we do have these patterns that get in us and we think that it's supposed to look a certain way. And then like every fiber of our being essentially uh, strives to recreate, to relive those patterns. So most of these patterns were not all that helpful. So a lot of what I've had to do, and this is why I love, you know, what I did with my PhD um, is all about transformation. And certainly what I'm helping clients do in coaching is about transformation. It is about trying to identify those old patterns that are basically outside of awareness, but are still running the show as it were. They are still (laughs) driving your behaviors. They're still driving your expectations. They're still driving your felt sense. And so just in general, you know, the world changes and there are demands that we grow. And a lot of times these early patterns or ideas or beliefs or understandings can trip us up. So were there other influences, for example, was there religious influence? Was there secondary ethnic influence? Was there language influence? What what other kinds of influences were around you when you're growing up? Well, definitely when I was growing up, again, I think that's really important to understand um, just what was going on in the culture at that time, like what is 1960s, right? More conservative. But I was definitely raised... 
um, Mormon, which is Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that is an even more conservative. So for me, I feel that many of the influences that I was exposed to in my family, you know, as public school education, um, and then certainly within my church was, again, very homogeneous, very conservative. I think go along to get along, very mm-hmm. um, pulling for compliance, pulling for men as privileged women as underprivileged. I think there was a lot of quite a bit of misogyny. Um, and I think part of what's been happening for me has also been having to try and grow out of those ideas about who women are and where they belong and what they can contribute, what they can do. This has been for me, again, a big thing that I've had to sort of grow out of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like the way you explain that. Later on, you chose to grow out of, and you. it sounds like you're pretty conscious of doing that. Um, what did you grow to? What did you grow towards? In many respects, I feel like I was a closeted liberal living in a very Republican, and, and my people are still Republican. But if we think about it in terms of political, or if we think about it in terms of collectivist versus individualistic um, ideals, um, definitely for me, I have moved away from authoritative and masculine authority at the top, more towards shared power, certainly more with for men and women, um, and certainly more democratic, more authoritative rather than authoritarian, more open to discourse and having um, sort of debates or learning about different points of view, trying to become more inclusive, less about trying to get people to fit into um, a certain narrow definition of what should be. So I think for me, it's sort of moving, as it were, from something more conservative towards something more liberal, I guess, would be the best way to try and talk about it. Mm-hmm. So you must have joined some groups. I mean, did you have a, a hobby, sport? Uh, you know, did you play an instrument? Did you learn from your profession? To did you become part of some kind of a professional group as you grew up? What groups do you feel that you have some affiliation with? Well, in terms of the groups that really helped me to grow the most, of course, would be. It's kind of funny because the membership, I don't know that I really have a membership, but certainly when I was in my PhD program, this was the most informative with regard to the kinds of things that we're talking about, really helping me to open to my own intelligence and open to my own agency and open to my own responsibility for thinking critically, open to my own sense of right and wrong or ethics, right? And then, of course, you know, becoming a National Board Certified Health and Wellness Coach, you know, I'm joining that association. It has ethics and guides that, you know, I ascribe to. So, but I think more than anything, for me, it's kind of funny, this belongingness. I think I have a lot of times been more of a loner now because of what I mentioned, that insecure attachment style. So I know I belong to groups, but I don't really feel myself as like a joiner. Yeah. But you would have some relationships, I would assume, other than just having a discussion or being a member of a professional group. Well, certainly I have relationships with men tours that I had in college. Certainly I have friends that I've, um, you know, discovered along the way. Certainly I, you know, I have my, I'm married. I have uh, my membership inside of my marriage with my husband, Uh, but mostly my life feels pretty much me doing what I do to grow my business. I think sometimes these pursuits can be like being an entrepreneur. Like where do I find a group of entrepreneurs? 
Yeah, um, but there's also related to that would be service to the community, would be involvement with some cause or charity that matters to you. It could be, you know, developing relationships with other family members that you've continued over time or some of the women that I've interviewed have told me about a sisterhood that they kind of seek, you know, it's with three to five friends that wherever they go, they look to create a kind of a group of women that become their sort of sisterhood friends. Does any of that resonate with you? Well, I think this is really great that this is sort of coming up like this, the way that you're sort of asking these questions. Um, yeah, for me, I think this is the challenge, right? The challenge is in part when you do outgrow something and then you try to grow into something else, it can be really challenging to find that sense of belonging mm-hmm. uh, because you don't, you really kind of are in that in-between. And actually there's been a lot of research written about this, uh, what happens for people like me who come and get their education later in life. They don't really belong in the old world and they don't really belong in the new world. So for me, I'm still working to find those bridges and those new groups where I can have a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what about your temperament? What would you say you were born with? People will say, oh yeah, you know, I was shy from the time I was little, or I've always been a people person, you know, like what would you say your temperament was that you came into the world with? Well, I think I tend to be cautious. When I was young, I used to love to clean things, organize things, collect things. So I tend to be um, cautious and able to organize things well. Yeah. And feeling also a little perfectionistic. This is a real challenge, wanting things to be sort of perfect or ideal. I think I've always been an idealist. Uh, This has really been a challenge for me to become more realist or more a pragmatist. So I would say if I really had to say, I guess it would be that I'm an idealist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then what has changed as you grew and matured? What have you added on to your personality? Well, and the other thing I would say is about me as well is that I was very musical. So I definitely started out with that, you know, song in my heart, always singing, can't get me to shut up. My, they used to call me also like the talking machine, you know, because I was always very loquacious. Mm-hmm. So that has stayed as well, pretty much love of language, love language. So I think what has changed changed is really more that sense of trying to become more realist, more pragmatist, less of an idealist, trying to um, lower my standards and make sure that I can really just sort of see things as good enough and making a contribution and moving things forward. And that's, you know, an improvement or just doing the work being there. Mm -hmm. So could you recall a time when you became aware that your understanding of the world was specific to you and your culture? Any kind of sense of culture shock or moving to a new group or situation where you just felt like, wow, I'm really not sure what's going on here. I've never experienced this before. Absolutely. Yes. When I moved in my mid-30s, I moved to New York City to pursue uh, my singing career. And absolutely, that was culture shock through and through. I really just couldn't even believe how different everything was. Thank goodness they spoke English. But beyond that, it just seemed like everything was different. Definitely going from that homogeneous suburban experience to this very heterogeneous urban experience was just Yeah, mind boggling. Mm -hmm. Everything there was so different. All the races and ethnicities, the religious sects, like really even coming to understand that what Christianity is just one of many world religions. What? You know, even that definitely the um, again, the socioeconomic thing, seeing everything from the super, super rich to the homeless person on the street, really being able. We don't tend to think of ourselves as a class of society, but really being able to see all the different socioeconomic statuses. 
Um, also, I think, you know, even for me, just the little things about how you shop and how you get from point A to point B, everything was so very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way you describe it, it really is a complete culture shock you know, from all aspects. Yeah. And it really took me a long time. I really struggled uh, with that, right, to grow accustomed and to adapt and to enculturate. And it was a challenge. So what helped you to start to feel more comfortable? Well, I don't know, actually, if I ever really felt more comfortable. I was there during 9-11. So that also made things a little challenging as well until eventually I stayed there for about 10 years. And then after that, there was a, a mix up at work. They had an upset. They had to downsize a bunch of people. And at that point, I realized like, okay, maybe this is time for me to go back west again. And that's really when I came to Tucson to do my PhD. Right. Well, at some point in New York, it must have at least felt more familiar. Oh, definitely. But, you know, that was the thing about New York, too, that was wild, which is the changing the city like that is the definition of fluidity. Like you never took the same train twice. You never saw the same people on the same train. You were never in the same car. So you never saw the same advertising. I was forever getting lost. I struggled to figure out now, where am I? So the point is, it was really a challenge in the city, like holding on to a job. It was through no fault of my own. They were constantly coming in and out of existence. Like Mm -hmm. I was working for Daimler-Benz. They merged with Chrysler. Poof, that was the end of that. I was working for a publisher and they decided that they had to cut back drastically. Poof, that was the end of that. I was working for a finance person. And like I said, somebody accused them of something. SEC came in, all their investors split. Poof, that was the end of that. I mean, it was a constant tumult. So for me to really understand, like when we talk about fast-paced fluid environments, for me, it's like, well, yeah, that's New York City. That sounds very, very unsettling. It was. And the sensory overload, you know, the amount of visual data and sensory data and physical data that was constantly pouring into you. As somebody who didn't grow up there, it was really challenging to begin to be able to build all those filters that you needed just to be able to dial it all into something that was manageable. But I didn't really, I think, realize the degree to which I was just so overstimulated and never really came. Because again, I was very naive about stress management and really didn't even know it was a thing and know what to do. About it at that time, the science wasn't developed enough, right? But I just mean, even there, without awareness of my body, without awareness of myself, like having that sort of mind body split where mostly it was all outwardly directed and not really having a sense of, okay, where am I and what do I need to do to take care of myself and what do I need? You know, as I get overstimulated, okay, what do I need to do to bring myself back, grounded, centered, calm, like right, even just that ebb and flow. And I think a lot of people in New York City might not know that, and that might be part of what makes living there so challenging. Mm. So do you think you've discovered that for yourself, how to settle and calm yourself and how to integrate your body and yourself and your inner and outer self? I think this is another thing that I'm certainly learning through all the things that I'm doing to educate myself and essentially integrate myself and essentially grow myself up as we continue to grow. For me, certainly in my case, grow out of things that are less helpful and into things that are more helpful. Mm-hmm. So when if somebody hires you, you know, to work with them, what do you need to be at your best? 
Well, I think, you know, there's all the things that you do, you know, needing to be well rested, nourished, you know, needing to be at peace with my husband, at peace with myself. But primarily in my sessions with clients, I'm just really intrigued by what's up for them and what they're grappling with and really um, looking to just understand where they're coming from. And then, of course, I'm always sort of doing that compare contrast with regard to best practice and wondering sort of, okay, where is the gap and where can we start to begin, like me, to move them out of that, which is less helpful and towards that, which is more helpful. Mm -hmm. So is there something you would like to promote? As a coach, I'm promoting coaching (laughs) as a tool. It's a very powerful tool to help people to share things openly without the fear of judgment about their concerns. So much in the culture, it's so difficult to be, as it were, on the vulnerable side, even hear me with you, you know, wondering, okay, how vulnerable should I be? How much should I let people know that, sure, I'm a work in progress, just like everybody else. So a sense, just that, that you can find a place where you can share openly, where you can think about the things that are really important for you, where you can have a thought partner that can help you to strategize. Certainly that you can have an accountability buddy that can help to push you out of your comfort zone and keep you on track when you want to say, ah, just let myself down. Oh, well, who cares? And go about your business. So I think that coaching is an extremely powerful tool. And I think a lot of people don't really know what it is and don't really know what the benefits are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else you'd like to say? Well, I think I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast with you because I really think that culture is such a huge thing, but very few people talk about it. And we are really often at the mercy, like culture is using us uh, to do its bidding. That's kind of what it's there for. We animate it. And sometimes we can be unaware of that. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's not such a great thing. But the point is, I think when you bring awareness to it, it's so important to begin to question whether or not you want to continue to engage with those cultural practices, or if you'd like to start to try and change those things a bit and to shape the culture as much as it shapes you, you figure out how to begin to shape it as well. So I love that you're bringing awareness to this topic through your show. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and learn more about how you're doing that. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us your thoughts, your view of the world and your reflections on your life and your own growth process. I really appreciate you doing that. Well, thank you for your interest. Have a great rest of the day. You too. Leslie Bosch describes herself personally as a work in progress. Her concept of being in culture and leadership comes from growing out of the fears and limitations of her past into a new sense of who she is personally. In her midlife, the move from a small homogenous Mormon community to the continuously dynamic city of New York propelled her into an ever-changing, unexpected environment that was a series of shocks. Then the experience of living in three very different locations and having multiple careers gave her multiple lenses with which to see the world. Yet, she is just now seeing personal opportunities for friendship and belonging that previously were not visible to her. As a psychologist and coach, Dr. Bosch is accomplished, articulate, and keenly interested in others and their experience. Her practice offers clients guidance and mentorship informed by incisive observation and analysis. 
If you like this podcast, do us a favor and go to your phone into the browser and type lovethepodcast.com slash culture and leadership using the and sign in the middle. That's lovethepodcast.com slash culture and leadership. Immediately, the right places where you can rate and review the podcast will pop up on your phone. That makes it smooth and easy for you to get us to our goal of a thousand downloads and get more and more people listening to our podcast at each episode. Thank you for your help with this project. And thank you for listening. Make culture and leadership connections continue to guide and inspire your day. Want to show some appreciation? You can buy me a coffee. What? How do you buy a coffee for a podcast owner? Well, there's a way. Let me explain. You go to buymeacoffee.com slash Marie Gervais. That's spelled M-A-R-I-E-G-E-R-V-A-I-S. So it's buymeacoffee.com slash Marie Gervais. And when you go to that website, what's going to happen is you'll get a chance to click on one, two, three, four, or five cups of coffee at $5 a piece to help contribute to the cost of the podcast. And yes, it's $5 for a cup of coffee because it's quality coffee for a quality podcast. So I hope you will contribute and you'll help us to reduce the costs of the podcast by going to buymeacoffee.com slash Marie Gervais. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution.